0: Let's begin with a word of prayer. Eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we call upon Your name, desiring Your blessing upon Your word of truth, that we would know it and understand it, that we would be sanctified in it and equipped to keep Your commandments and to teach others to observe whatsoever the Lord has taught and commanded us. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is that special anointing that enables us to distinguish truth from error, righteousness from unrighteousness, and that he has inspired for us this lamp for our feet and light for our path. We do recognize your infinite transcendence and that your triunity is something that our minds cannot fully grasp. And yet... Uh, Though the secret things belong to the Lord, those things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So please help us to be able to grasp these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. We continue our Federal Vision Lecture Series, and in doing so, we continue on to the second part of our lecture on Social Trinitarianism as we're considering the Federal Vision and its unbiblical doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, We're not saying that every Federal Visionist is some sort of uh, Trinitarian heretic or something like that, but we saw last time that the 2007 Federal Vision Joint Statement affirms that, quote, the Triune God is the archetype of all covenantal relations, all faithful theology and life is conducted in union with and imitation of the way God eternally is, end quote. We saw that there are shades of social Trinitarianism among the Federal Visionists, especially Ralph Smith, whose terminology, vocabulary, uh, really whose writings have greatly influenced that Federal Vision joint statement. We saw Rich Lusk in the Auburn Avenue Theology Colloquium in 2003 directly citing Ralph Smith arguing that there is this original covenant within the Trinity not a covenant between the persons of the Trinity by way of an internal work of God but that the very ontological being of God is a covenant and we trace that back to social Trinitarianism and especially to Ralph Smith whose two books on the Trinity were published by Canon Press in Moscow, Idaho uh, both in 2003. The Eternal Covenant, How the Trinity Reshapes Covenant Theology and then the second book, Paradox and Truth, Rethinking Van Til on the Trinity. And in the outline that we're about to move to here You'll see a number of citations from the Eternal Covenant and also from numerous explanatory articles written in the aftermath of those two books in which Ralph Smith is responding to critics and fleshing out the meaning of what he said in those books. Uh, And those other articles are found at his website. I think it's berith.org, B-E-R-I-T-H.org. That's somewhere in the handout. I can't find it here, but I think that's the name of the site. In any event, I don't have any quotations from the second of those books, Paradox and Truth, though I do have a copy and uh, we just—I just I just didn't have time to incorporate that into the outline. In that book, he does try to criticize certain aspects of social Trinitarianism, but at the end of the day, he basically says that we should learn from this and make a few tweaks with some Vantilian uh, ideas. And so, so I would argue that there's nothing in that book that undercuts what we're seeing here with the social Trinitarianism that seems to have infected his theology. But let's take a look at what Ralph Smith has actually written. You can see that on page two, The Social Trinitarianism of Ralph A. Smith. First, Smith downplays the distinction between the ontological and economic trinity in order to introduce a radically different understanding of the former. That is the ontological trinity. So remember we said, and these are big words, but I mean, they're important words. The ontological trinity is God in himself, in his being. This is who and what God is and always would be, even apart from creating the universe. Even if God never created anything, it was just God in and of Himself from all eternity into eternity, this is who He is as the ontological trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. The economic trinity refers to the way in which the persons of the trinity interact in the works of God, the the, the decree to create, the creation itself, providence, redemption, so on and so forth. Uh, and a good illustration of this is Jesus, as our God-man mediator, says the Father is greater than I. And we would say that that's a reference to the economic trinity, the outworking of God's plan. Jesus becomes man and submits to the Father in subordination, economic subordination, but Jesus as the eternal Son of God from all eternity is not subordinate to the Father. So that relationship of subordination is economic, not ontological. There's total equality within the ontological trinity. So that would be one example. This is, in other words, a safeguard against outright heresy. Now, let's look at some of these quotes where he tries to soft pedal or downplay or undermine this distinction as is typical of social Trinitarians. Quote, the, tra- the traditional language for distinguishing God in himself and God as he works in history is ontological trinity and economic trinity. Let me stop there for a moment. Sometimes ontological trinity will be called imminent that you'll see that as a, as a synonym there. Just be aware of that in some of these other quotes and writings that you may find. Um, but, but he sets that distinction forward, picking up the quote. Obviously, these two must be one. Thus, not only must we say that the ontological and economic trinity are one, we must confess that it is beyond us to entirely distinguish between them. End quote. Now, from a certain standpoint, that just sounds like he's being humble and... But actually, again, this safeguards us from heresy, and he's soft-pedaling it. He's saying, well, these two things are one. We're not really sure entirely how to distinguish between them. And the reason he's doing that, uh, we'll see in a moment. Again, quote, The Bible has much more to say about the relationships between the persons than traditional Trinitarian theology the economic trinity contains riches that have never been mined for the doctrine of the ontological trinity, end quote. So he's removing the barrier that says, okay, what we see the persons of the trinity doing in history doesn't necessarily translate to the eternal being of God. We have this distinction that he's now downplaying, and now some of the things in the economic trinity that need to stay there are beginning to leach up into the ontological trinity and this is he's trying to remove that barrier so that he can say you know what uh, there's much about God in himself that traditional theology in other words pretty much all faithful Christian creeds and confessions up until Ralph Smith haven't mined out but now here comes the Federal Vision. Here comes Ralph Smith. And he's going to mine these things out. And here come the social Trinitarians, 20th century liberals. Here come these people. They're going to tell us things we've never heard before and blow our minds. But you see, the reason they're getting these insights is because they've, they've removed the barrier. And now they're going to draw inferences from what God does to who God is in a way that is totally reckless and irresponsible. That's why we have the distinction we would not argue that the economic trinity has no bearing on the ontological trinity. Uh, after all, we see uh, the, the, the son of God in history is the one who was born of a virgin, who was incarnate, and he's the eternally begotten son of God. There's some correspondence there, right? He's the eternal word of the father, and he's our great mediatorial prophet who reveals God's word. So there are corresponding features But there requires quite a bit of evidence and warrant to make the the inference. You have to get past the gatekeeper of this distinction. You can't just say, well, Jesus relates to the Father in a certain way in the the book of Mark. Therefore, that's the eternal ontological trinity. And that's where he's removing that barrier of clear biblical warrant and just uh, opening the floodgates of very dangerous doctrines so he he wants to radically redefine the ontological trinity with all these amazing new insights now second major point having mined the riches of the economic trinity smith argues that god's essential unity must be grounded in an ontological covenant of love between the persons of the trinity so god's essential unity his unity of being he is one god that unity of being, that ontological, essential unity, he's saying must be grounded in a covenant of love. Not that the unity of God's being then manifests itself in a covenant, but that the covenant is essential to God's being. That is God's unity of being. It's a covenant. Quote, "...what God does in time reveals who He is in eternity." And his most characteristic act in establishing relationships with other persons in time is covenant making. End quote. So the logic is if he does it in time, it must be true in his eternal being. He's removed that distinction, and so now he's beginning to uh, cash in on it. Quote, covenant in God is the source of the covenantal reality of the world. End quote. Just like social Trinitarians, he tries to see the being of God as relevant because it speaks to human society and civilization. Uh, Covenantal reality in the world. We saw there's a problem with this, by the way, because what about the covenantal reality of a wife submitting to her husband? Does that mean that the son submits to the father in the ontological Trinity? You see, there is covenantal subordination in this world. Is the eternal being of God the basis for that? If so, how? Without falling into heresy. He doesn't really help us with that. Quote, The three persons are perfectly united in the love of the eternal Trinitarian covenant. The life of God is covenantal. God is three persons united in covenantal love. End quote. It it turns the Trinity into something of a marriage. A love commitment. Well, what do we understand about marriage? The two shall become one. So the implication, even if he tries to deny it or or uh, you know, use ambiguous language to avoid the inference, if you turn God's being into a covenant of love, you're essentially saying the three become one through the covenant, which means you have pre-existing parts to the whole, which destroys the simplicity of God and really destroys the eternality of God's uh, being because there's there's this sequence first you have the three then they come together just like marriage now he might say well it's not exactly like marriage but it's irresponsible to use this language of god's being being a covenant of love quote the covenant of redemption then is seen to imply a covenant relationship among the persons of the trinity because it would be odd to imagine a god let's stop there don't do your trinitarian theology by saying well uh here's what it seems like to me and if we said this it would really seem odd okay this is not the way that you do trinitarian theology based on how it strikes you at any given moment that's the impression you get here Um, but he says the covenant of redemption then is seen to imply a covenant relationship among the persons of the trinity because it would be odd to imagine a God who knows nothing of covenant in his own nature, but who would, upon the presupposition of creation and man's fall, suddenly decide to enter into a covenant to deal with the problems, end quote. Now we agree there's a covenant of redemption between the three persons. That is an internal work of God. That's not inherent to God's being. God didn't have to do that, uh, but he chose to do it as part of his eternal decree. And uh, what Ralph Smith is saying, if God does this, there must be something corresponding in his being. Otherwise, wouldn't it be odd for God to be making a covenant in his, with respect to his creation if he's not covenantal in the ontological trinity? Wouldn't that be odd to imagine that? Uh, but this is a huge problem because God... Created the heavens and the earth well wouldn't it be odd for God to create the heavens and the earth if there's no creation in the ontological trinity I mean therefore the father must have created the son and not begotten him eternally uh, because God is the creator God relates to his creation as the creator therefore wouldn't it be odd for God to do something in history that isn't part of the ontological trinity Uh, I mean you had cornflakes this morning. Isn't that interesting that God would ordain there, there would be cornflakes if he wasn't eating cornflakes for all eternity? You know, this is, this is a ridiculous argument. And we need to recognize there are many things that God does and many things that God ordains in history that are the product of his own creative mind that are not of necessity embedded in his being. This type of argument is is a foolish argument that leads us to some very, very dangerous consequences. Third point, Smith defines the Trinitarian Covenant in terms suggestive of eternal subordination. Now, you've seen in evangelical circles the rise of people trying to defend something of traditional marriage relationships, complementarianism, wives submitting to husbands, both are equally human, but in terms of the function, their subordination. They try to defend that, and they're so focused on that as, as their mission in life that they begin to conform everything else to that, just like the social Trinitarians. And so the eternal triunity of God becomes subordinate to this, uh, albeit uh, legitimate, social concern of husbands and wives. And so what happens is the Uh, these eternal functional subordination evangelicals, some of them even Calvinists, will say that the the Son eternally functionally submits to the Father, submits His will to the Father. Again, it it implies a social Trinitarianism, almost a tritheistic idea of God having three wills, one submitting to the other. And He's going to say some things that seem to play into that. Quote, now, when the Bible speaks of a relationship in which there is a hierarchy, responsibility, commands, and stipulations, and a promised blessing, the Bible calls that relationship a covenant, end quote. So this is in his book, The Eternal Covenant. He's arguing that God's being is a covenant, and he defines a covenant as hierarchy, responsibility, commands, stipulations, a promised blessing. So how, how do you get out of eternal subordination if you define subordination as intrinsic to the notion of a covenant and then say God's being is a covenant? Quote, the doctrine of God's attributes, attributes must take into account that the Father loves the Son in a way that is different from the way the Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Son as a Father and so gives the Son commandments and a mission the Son loves the Father as a Son and so delights to do His will and to fulfill the work He has given. He has been given. Faithfulness, righteousness, goodness, and other attributes similarly differ according to the nature of the relationship. Quote. He is not talking about the economic trinity here. He is saying, in the economic trinity of the Son obeying the Father's commandments and doing the work that has been given to Him by the Father, in obedience to the father that we see the eternal ontological being of God the the triunity of God the relationship between the father and the son the eternal love of the son for the father he says is involved in receiving the father's commandments and doing them not as the result of the covenant of redemption a freely voluntary decision God made to do XYZ in history through the the God-man mediator but but this is the ontological trinity, subordination. Uh, This is a huge problem. It strikes at the heart of the co-eternal, co-equal, co-extensive unity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All right, fourthly, Smith defines the Trinitarian Covenant in terms suggestive of tritheism and divine composition. In other words, three entities that come together and form the Trinity almost as a sort of coalition that's the kind of idea here divine composition we don't believe God has parts or passions as the confession says our God is one unified deity but Smith defines the Trinitarian Covenant in terms suggestive of tritheism and divine composition as if God's essential unity were grounded in a mere commitment of love that's a quote which, quote, joins the three persons of God in a community of life, end quote, as the, quote, ultimate kingdom, a covenantal society of love, end quote. Tritheistic language, divine composition. Let's hear the quotes. First, quote, a covenant is a commitment of love, since it creates a relationship fundamentally different from the mutual prophecy seeking relationship of a contract, it must be established in a different manner. End quote. So here he says that a covenant, remember God's being, three persons of the Godhead in their unity of being, that this unity of being is a covenant which he calls a commitment of love that creates a relationship. So how is that not tritheism and divine composition? If you have three entities, three persons and they enter a covenant and create a relationship. This is horrific. Next, quote, God is love because the Father, Son, and Spirit share an everlasting love for one another. Each of the three persons of the Trinity wholly devotes himself to bless and glorify the other, end quote. Now, we might say that God is shown to be love, because the Father, Son, and Spirit share an everlasting love for one another. But he doesn't say that. He says, God is love. In other words, He is love. The reason He is love, the reason His character is love, is because the Father, Son, and Spirit share an everlasting love for one another, which seems to make the the love between the persons of the Trinity determinative of the character of God. Because what causes God to be love? what creates the relationship, creates the character of God? Well, it's these three persons devoting themselves to one another. Uh, you, you, it, again, it's very similar to marital language uh, because the, the two become one. The two devote themselves to each other, and the result is this unity of marriage. Quote, the covenant among the persons of the Trinity is a covenant of love in which each of the persons of the Trinity gives himself wholly to the others, denies himself to bless the others, and humbles himself to glorify the others, end quote. You can see in the footnote there, there are numerous other references to self-denial and self-sacrifice among the persons of the Trinity. This is tritheism. Why? Well, God is the eternally blessed God. If the being of God is one, then the well-being of God is one. So one of the persons of the Trinity cannot sacrifice his own distinct well-being for the well-being of another person of the Trinity. Because if you have a different well-being to sacrifice, then you have a different being. Right? This is is tritheistic. The the Trinity is one self by nature with one well-being the father doesn't sacrifice his own well-being for the good of the son uh, he, he th- they have the same well-being the same glory the same unified being and the same unified well-being so for the father to be blessed is for the son to be blessed and for the holy spirit to be blessed they share eternal blessedness within the one divine nature and uh This is a huge, huge step toward heresy, if not worse. Again, quote, what we see in the covenant is both love and law. James Jordan, see, now we get into trouble. James Jordan's definition of the covenant attempts to do justice to both dimensions. The covenant is a personal structural bond which joins the three persons of God in a community of life and in which man was created to participate. This can be paraphrased in similar terms to stress that the covenant is a bond of love that structures the community life of the three persons of God. This again points to tritheism. You have these three persons and they enter into this bond of love. They're joined The covenant joins them together. It assumes that there's something to be joined together. That there's something at least even logically pre-existing, logically prior to the being of God. That is the three persons. And then they become God. They join the Trinity in this community of life. Like somebody joins the community center or something like that. Um, Of course, those are crass terms. But the fact is, this is very dangerous, quasi-heretical theology. And uh, it's on the foundation of the faith, the Trinity, the the definition of who God is. So it's very serious. Uh, We shouldn't be just throwing all these illustrations and analogies and novel vocabulary words into the equation. But that's what he does. The the covenant is a bond of love that structures the community life of the three persons. That seems to indicate that the three persons are over here. And the covenant is like a, a structural plan to keep them from from losing their structure. I mean, all of this points to, to a, a heretical understanding of God uh, as if he needed something to structure his life. Uh, you, know, w- w- you know, it's like somebody adopts a diet plan or, or some kind of a schedule in the morning. God, God is everything that God needs. God doesn't need a covenant to structure his life as if he would be chaotic otherwise. All of this language is, is, in tr- is getting us into trouble. Um, Again, quote, when we speak of righteousness, we are focusing on the commandments or stipulation of the covenant among the persons of the Trinity. This would mean that each of the persons of the Trinity acts so as to preserve the personal distinctions and boundaries of the persons. Alarm bells should be going off because the three persons are coextensive. We call this perichoresis or um, inter- Uh, communion Uh, the the three persons of the Trinity uh, uh, Jesus says I am in the Father and the Father is in me there's a mutual indwelling interpenetration there it's not as though the the Trinity is a pie and you cut up the boundaries for the different pieces of the pie Uh, the boundaries of the persons this is a huge problem he goes on none seeks to rob the other of glory or position Love focuses attention on self-sacrificially seeking to glorify and bless the other. Love is the fulfilling of the whole covenant, the essence of the law, end quote. So there's a law that governs God. All of this just flies in the face of historic Christian theology proper and especially Reformed confessional theology proper. Quote, God himself is in the fellowship of, Sorry, God Himself in the fellowship of Trinitarian love is the ultimate kingdom. He goes on, if you look at the underlined words, to call the persons of the Trinity the true covenant. And He calls them a covenantal kingdom of love. He goes on in the next quote, the triune God is a society. He goes on, a covenantal society of love. And listen to this. So, this is from this final quote, letter H, on number four. This is from the Eternal Covenant, published by Canon Press. And listen to who is cited here in this quotation, which was published in a book uh, from Canon Press. Quote, Catherine M. Lacunia, who's a Roman Catholic feminist and social Trinitarian the- theologian uh, who taught at Notre Dame up until uh, her... Uh, untimely death from cancer Catherine M. Lacunia is among those who claim that Augustine's doctrine of the Trinity as a theology of substance emphasized the oneness of God to the detriment of God's threeness so here we have Catherine M. Lacunia, the Roman Catholic feminist and you know, female theologian preacher so on and so forth and on the other hand we have Augustine who do you think Canon Press and Ralph Smith and all these guys would, whose side are they going to take? Well, apparently we're taking Catherine M. Lacuna's side against Augustine. Interesting. He goes on, the Augustinian and Latin view does not deny that God is a God of communion and fellowship, but speculates on Trinitarian communion as an intra-divine occurrence. Fellowship among the persons of the Trinity is the unifying force that holds together the three co-equal persons who know and love each other as peers. So Lacuna, taking a social Trinitarian view here, over against Augustine, uh, is saying the Trinity is, is really just this, this group of peers. Peers. Now you see the egalitarianism bleeding through here. Lacuna argues that the Greek and Latin theologies offer two quite different visions of personhood, and that means they also offer different views of the Christian life and Christian society. When we answer the question, who is God, we have also answered the questions, who are we and how shall we live? This is what makes the doctrine of the Trinity so important. End quote. And that's Smith at the end when he's, he's taking what Lacuna said, agreeing with it, and saying, this is what makes the doctor of the Trinity so important. That's Smith saying that. So he's citing Lacuna over against Augustine. And he's, he's critical of Augustine and other portions as well. Uh, but he's, he's holding up this Roman Catholic feminist as the expert. Interesting. Uh, you know, Doug Wilson may put forward a certain face on social media, but uh, the devil's in the details. All right, Uh, what we're we're going to do is uh, just conclude here with section five. We'll finish up next time so that we don't go too far over time. Fifth point, Smith asserts that the essential divine attributes of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit differ according to the nature of the relationship. And I would argue this creates a quadrinity because what you end up having is Here's the, here, here's the attribute or the attributes of the divine nature of the one God. And then here we have the attributes distinctly of the Father, distinctly of the Son, and distinctly of the Spirit. You end up having four. And that's a quadrinity of some kind. Listen to what he says. Quote, and we read this one already, but I want to highlight a certain portion. The doctrine of God's attributes must take into account that the Father loves the Son in a way that is different from the way the Son loves the Father. Faithfulness, righteousness, goodness, and other attributes similarly differ according to the nature of the relationship. End quote. That is just not true. The Bible distinguishes between the, the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father only in terms of the object of the love. So, what what differentiates the father's love for the son versus the son's love for the father uh, the only thing that differentiates it is that it's the father loving the son or the son loving the father but the love is not different because god is love so if you have a different love you have a different god it's very simple you know the, pe- people say the bible's not a book of systematic theology well There's some pretty straightforward statements about the being of God. God is love. So if you have different loves, you have different gods. Uh, The Father loves the Son, and we can distinguish that proposition from the Son loves the Father. But the love is the same because what is it that's loving? When the Son loves, what is it that's loving? It's the love of the one God. When the Father loves, it's the love of the one God. When the Holy Spirit knows something or does something, it's the being of God taking action as Father, as Son, or as Holy Spirit, depending on which person. But the the attribute is the same. The being, the character is the same. There are not three different loves in God, or there would be three different gods exercising love. He goes on, quote, Why should it be thought to compromise God's unity if the Father possesses all the attributes in a particularly fatherly way so that paternity defines how God the Father expresses the attributes. If each person possesses all the attributes according to the distinction of his own person, then the attributes become the attributes of persons, which is the way we would normally think of attribute. Let's stop there, end quote. This is, he makes statements like this all over the place in his literature. And it's just not how we do theology, especially theology proper. We don't reason from what seems ordinary for us in our human context to who God is. Okay, We just can't operate that way. Just because we would normally think of an attribute in our human context in a certain way doesn't mean that we reason from that observation to the infinite eternal character of God. Because his ways are above our ways, his thoughts are above our thoughts. You just can't do theology that way. Continuing, quote, All the attributes of God belong to God in the unity of his being, as well as in the three persons. Let's stop there. You've got four. You've got four loves. You have the the love of the one God, which is not qualified by any particular person of the Godhead. Now you have the love of the Father, which is a fatherly love. You have the the Son's filial love. You have the Holy Spirit's um, pneumatic love, if you could put it that way. Spiritual love. But now you have four loves, four sets of attributes. In other words, a quadrinity of four gods. That's a problem. That's a big problem. This This seems to be the trend here. Lots of problems with this theology. Continuing. He says, when we contemplate God in the absolute oneness of his being, it may be legitimate to say that the attributes of God all equal each other and are coterminous in the being of God. But when we contemplate God in his threeness, each of the attributes comes to unique expression in the covenantal relationships of Father, Son, and Spirit. Or perhaps we should say that the Father, Son, and Spirit each possess the attributes in a manner that is appropriate to the person. End quote. Now, first of all, before you write a book on the Trinity, you should probably figure out which one it is, right? If you're saying, here's what's true, but perhaps it's this and maybe it's that, this is the kind of stuff that you get out of Canon Press where he's writing a book on the Trinity and he's still not even sure. Perhaps this, perhaps that. Figure out which one's right, work with your editor, and publish the book afterward. But he's just suggesting these things... um, Notice, by the way, unique expression. Here's, I think, what he's trying to say. We would not deny that the one God who is love manifests that love, expresses that love in diverse ways through the three persons. There's no problem with that. There are unique and different expressions of divine love through the activities of the three persons in the covenant of redemption in the the decrees of God, the providence of God, creation, and so on and so forth, redemption, the expressions can be diverse, but the attribute itself cannot be diverse. There's one attribute, there's one being of God, but there are unique expressions of the same attribute according to which person is being highlighted in a particular aspect of biblical revelation. So you can see here that uh, maybe he's trying to reel it in, if we look at it in the absolute uh, most charitable way possible. Hopefully he is reeling it back in a little bit, but unfortunately he, he doesn't deny what he said about these attributes differing. Uh, final quote here, he says, To regard each of the persons of the Trinity as persons in the full sense of the word requires us to see each of them possessing all of the attributes in a unique manner. So he's not reeling it in. Expressing them in a unique manner, perhaps, but possessing them in a unique manner, that denies the unity of the divine being. He goes on, there are subtle but important differences in what it means for a father to be righteous and what it means for a son to be righteous for the simple reason that fathers and sons have different responsibilities in the relationship our doctrine of God's attributes has to take those differences I think probably he says take those differences into account end quote so here you have three persons of the Godhead with different responsibilities to each other seems like something of subordination if not maybe a mutual subordination between the three persons it's very very much suggestive of tritheism and as we said, of a quadrinity. So, as much as we might like to point out many of the other errors within the federal vision, let's not gloss over how they make a mess of the Trinity. And if they can't handle the Trinity with care, what makes you think they're going to handle the gospel with care? What makes you think they're going to handle issues of marriage and family with care? What makes you think they're going to handle political issues with care? And if it's the case that the Trinity is the basis for the social order, well, even if we took that sort of social Trinitarian construct, we would find that the Federal Vision, Ralph Smith, Canon Press, have made an utter mess. They've butchered the doctrine of the Trinity. And so, if, even on their presupposition, we should be highly skeptical of what they say about the social order. That doesn't mean they can't say things that are correct, there's always a worm on the hook to get the fish to bite. So there's a lot of biblical things that come out of Canon press, but there's a hook underneath. So you need to, you need to be careful. Uh, next time we'll look at the, the remaining sections. Does anybody have any questions on this material for this time? All right, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, We come to you through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, empowered and equipped by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would destroy all error and purge it away from your bride, the church. We pray that you would replace it with truth and righteousness, that uh, your people would get the information they need to discern the times and discern various teachers and preachers and ministries and movements that they would have that anointing of discernment from the Holy Spirit and that they would walk in paths of truth and righteousness, not turning to the left hand nor to the right. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.